Well, on the first page, I have the review, and I want to remind you that we have, as a, a focus of the book, there is a set of verses that is then unpacked for the rest of the book. The, the book starts, the first 15 verses, Paul talks about his authority and his mission. He has the word of God as a gift of the spirit that he is delivering to the church, and his mission is to glorify God throughout the earth, that he would bring the nations to the faith and into obedience to Christ. Now, he gives this thesis, verses 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So, the idea that there's not a difference in terms of how you are saved, whether you're a Jew or Greek, but all of the nations alike have the same means of salvation. And that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the mediatorial work of Christ alone. And then there's an explanation in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is revealed from the faith that's been given to us. We have the doctrine, the apostolic deposit. It's from the objective faith delivered to the saints. And it's to our individual subjective faith. So God uses the word to cause us to believe. And so, as it is written, and here's the word that shows this, the just shall live by faith. Right? So in other words, the idea is that those who by faith are just shall live. And we're told elsewhere that faith is eternal life. Faith is everlasting life. So to have faith is to have this spiritual life. And so... The righteousness of God gets broken out and explained as we go through the book. Chapters 1 to 3 focuses on God's righteousness as a judge and the righteousness of God in the law, which establishes our guilt. 3 to 5 gives us the righteousness of God imputed to the believers. So Christ's perfect obedience credited to, accounted to the believer, not because the believer has righteousness in himself, but this external Righteousness from outside of us, credited to us. Then, there is, in chapters 6 to 8, the righteousness of God imparted in sanctification. So, the guilt of sin is taken away by the death of Christ, and we are given a righteousness, the righteousness of God, by Christ's perfect obedience in our place as a covenant representative. And then, we also have the power of sin being taken away and reduced bit by bit, sometimes in large advances. And so we are made more holy. We are made internally more righteous. We are transformed after the image of Christ by degrees. But we do not have our standing before God based upon that internal righteousness. It's a part of the gift and a part of the blessing that we receive in the Gospel. Chapter 9 defends the righteousness of God in His predestination and explains why charges against God are folly. And then chapters 10 to 11 talk about the righteousness of God and His treatment of Israel. Uh, His promises are not void. And now we continue in chapter 12 through 16 where the righteousness of God on display is the rational service of the saints. And it's how we see the glory of God advance in the earth is by applying His law word. And so as we consider what we're looking at today in verses 9 through 21, this is a consideration of how to conquer evil. The end of of what we read says to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. 
And you may be familiar with the brand Nike. Their word, that name Nike, is the Greek word uh, to conquer or to be victorious. Okay, and so that's what's, that's what's here at the end in Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Uh, it's overcome. It's Nico and Nika, right? This idea of, of conquer, be victorious. So overcoming is about conquest. And so what's happening is the kingdom of God is going forth and, and under the feet of the saints, the enemies of God are subdued as the body of Christ. And so we make advances by the power of the Holy Spirit in the service of Christ by applying the law. The law is a tool of dominion. It's the instruction manual for dominion. And what we see is that the church advances as we apply what the Word says. We, we, the, elsewhere, the Scriptures talk about hastening the coming of Christ. Obviously, God is predestined when that's going to occur. But He has also predestined the means by which it will occur. And so, acting in a manner that makes progress, that God causes the fruit, and He causes us to desire to do these things. So we're looking at the law, and what's happening here is, is Paul is expositing the law. So, go with me to page 2 of your notes. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now remember, coming out of verse 8, right? we have verses 1 and 2 is that hinge thesis about the rational service to God. Living as a sacrifice according to the law. Doing what's good, acceptable, and perfect in the will of God. So the law of God teaches that. And then we have the remaining verses, 3 to 8, talk about the gifts and using them and honoring gifts in others that the Holy Spirit has given. So now, how do we do that? Well, what we're going to have is essentially a, a call to apply the fifth commandment, and it's going to be related to other parts of the law. And so, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. This is uh, a call to integrity. And if we consider what love and hypocrisy are, we'll, we'll get a deeper understanding, and I'll come back to that, but what happens immediately after that in verse 10 it says be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another and I think if you understand verse 10 it becomes a lot easier to get the flow of the rest of the verses we're looking at today verse 10 it says be kindly affectionate and the Greek word there is philo look at the bottom of page 2.7 philo storgoi okay now, now philo phyla love okay and Storgoy, if you've ever, C.S. Lewis has a famous book called The Four Loves. Um, it's not a perfect book by any means, but it does accurately identify four Greek words for love. And one of them is storge. And storge is supposed to be sort of uh, the affection for the family. Well, in particular, its most common usage is in terms of the love of a child for parent or parent for child. That's the most common way it is used. And so that is typically sort of the... The, the first definition that occurs in Greek dictionaries for this word. It's talking about, it'll say family love, it'll say parental love, it'll say the love of a parent for a child or a child for a parent. And then you'll have other definitions. That's the most common usage. And so you think about that, how does a parent love a child? Well, a parent loves a child as a superior in station to an inferior in station. And how does a child love a parent? As an inferior in station, loving a superior in station. Okay, so that's, that's the fifth commandment. But the fifth commandment also has to do with how we deal with people who are in positions that are 
equal. And so at the very end of today's sermon notes, I've given to you the long printout of the fifth commandment in a larger catechism, which talks about duties of superiors to inferiors, inferiors to superiors, and equals to each other. So this categorization is not a categorization that the, that the Westminster Assembly just invented. It is a categorization in the word of God itself. And so verse 10 here is saying, first, treat each other properly according to your stations, parents to children and children to parents. Also, treat each other with brotherly love. And that word has that same prefix, phyla, and then we have Delphia. Delphos are, are brothers. And so the idea of, of brotherly love, love that is towards a brother, and this, the, the city of Philadelphia gets its name from that word, the city of brotherly love. And so we have this idea of love each other as parents love children and children love parents. And love each other as brothers love each other. And the last words there after the comma, in honor giving preference to one another, that's explaining the brotherly love. So, obviously, if you are dealing with, you know, children, if you're dealing with your parents, you should honor them before they honor you. Okay, this is not saying the parents need to outdo their children in honoring them. Okay, what this is saying is when you're dealing with equals, you seek to outdo each other in honoring now, superiors ought to use their position to serve, and in that way they are seeking to out-honor, right? because the whole point of authority is to serve. And so if the authority is being used to lord over, then what well, is an abuse there? But this text, what I'm trying to say is, the exhortation there is, is principally to the equals. And so the idea here is, if you are in authority, exercise your authority with love, like a parent to a child. If you're under authority, accept that authority with love like a parent to a child. I might have just misspoken. Parent to child, child to parent. I think you can figure out what I mean, so I'll, I'll just continue now. And so, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, treating equals in such a way that you give honor to the other before they give honor to you. And so that behavior is helping us to understand how it is that we can possibly use our gifts effectively. That's how we can avoid dealing with gifting and failing to honor gifting. That's how we can deal with gifting and acknowledge our own weaknesses is if we have this sort of attitude. And so this is going to help us to interpret uh, what's going on around it. So let's jump back up to verse 9. Okay, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. So, love, the word here is agape. And so, love is obedience to the law. But you can try to apply the law in such a way as to not love your neighbor, right? You think about how the Pharisees tried to take the Sabbath commandment, and they tried to say, should we heal on the Sabbath? And should we pick grains on the Sabbath? And so, the idea that they didn't think about what the Sabbath was for. They made the Sabbath something that man served, as opposed to making it so that the Sabbath was, in the law of God, used to bless the people of God. And so, when you take the law of God 
and disorder it and make man for the law rather than making the law for the purpose of glorifying God and instructing man how to grow in the knowledge of God and display the knowledge of God, you, you destroy the law. You, you result in misinterpretation. On the other side, if you try to take the goal and don't apply the law, don't say, that, you know, if you say, well, the details don't really matter, all that matters is the goal, you just end up with a consequentialist antinomianism where you just say, the goal justifies whatever action I think might advance the goal. And it's very convenient for me to do these things that are condemned by the law, but it's okay because it's advancing the goal. right? And so the Jesuits were famous for having justified all sorts of evil in order to glorify God. And so they would say, this is okay because of this, because of the goal. And so the the word casuistic, which means having to do with case law, became sort of a slur because people would talk about Jesuit casuistry where they would try to find, well, in this particular case, you don't need to apply any of the law because we have all of these things that justify not obeying anything that the law says, and so we can just advance the goal. And so the danger of either just looking at the goal or just looking at the means, they both by themselves are insufficient. We have to love by seeking to apply the law, that's the means, in pursuit of the glory of God. That's the goal. So righteousness with holiness in mind. So love always has an object. Love doesn't exist without a target. Love is the desire for the good of that object. So when you love God, you're seeking the good of God. When you love your neighbor, you're seeking the good of your neighbor. Love seeks the good of the object. Love seeks the good of the object with the right means. And so we're called to use the law of God with a proper intention. That's what without hypocrisy is. And so the word there, without hypocrisy, it's it's, uh, essentially anahypocritus. So without hypocrisy. Um, And so what's hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is pretending to be something you're not, right? It comes from the idea of the mask of a player being hippo, being under, and then being under the mask. And so to be a a hypocrite uh, is to be the one who's under the mask, the, the player who's under the mask. And so if we are wearing a mask and doing good works where we are not actually seeking the good of the neighbor and not seeking the glory of God, then that's hypocritical love and therefore it's not really love and so this idea of actually desiring the good of the neighbor requires us to understand the neighbor's good what is the good for our neighbor what's our own good what is the goal that God is pursuing and so we know that God is, has made all things for his glory And so we must understand what it is to glorify God deeply. And all understanding of the law must be in terms of how does this display God's greatness? How does this display God's attributes? And how does it help in the knowing of God's attributes? And so we love seeking the glory of God and seeking that the neighbor would know God. And so, 
the things that accord with that goal are the hatred of evil and the clinging, cleaving, glue-sticking, joining of self to what is good. And so we, we study what the Bible teaches about those things. We need to remember that the law of God is sufficient. We have a, a sort of regulative principle of life that the law of God covers all the categories. It tells us what's good, what's worth doing, and it tells us what's not worth doing. And those things together give us a full picture. There's no places missing. Right? There's, there's nothing that, that fails to be covered by looking at the law of God. We, we see that all of life, everything fits into the law of God. And it provides us with a holistic way of seeing the world. And it gives us the categories to think in. So with that in mind, with this desire to, the fact that we're supposed to hate evil and we're supposed to cleave to what is good, we have a bunch of instruction about how to do that. And so we need to have an attitude towards each other that's appropriate, seeing people in terms of their station and then figuring out how do we treat them properly in their stations. And the idea that equals need to be honored before ourselves means that you err on the side of honoring the other. So when things are equal, you err on the side of honoring the other. And so there are certain pieces of our own culture that are about that. You know, why does the last piece of bread not get eaten? Because the other person is trying to leave it for the other person. And so then somebody has to be rude and like force the other person to eat it, right? That's how, that's how you uh, show honor in that way. So... You go to verse 10, keep going down. This idea of being kindly affectionate, point seven. We owe honor. And when we owe honor, according to station, we should be careful to give it. Point eight, the idea of brotherly love, which love like brothers equals or to work together to accomplish the goal. Brotherly love is not just about hanging out. Uh, people who leave military service after an active war talk about how they miss the brotherhood after the war. The, the thing that's missed is the brotherhood after the war. And that's because in ordinary life, everybody seems aimless, and everybody seems like they don't really care about each other that much. You go from a circumstance where people are consistently seeking to stay alive, and they're given orders and have to accomplish a mission, and then they also are watching out for each other to keep each other alive, that builds bonds. And so in Christian life, what happens in the American church is because we have it so good, because we are so wealthy and so full of bread, what happens is nothing is worth fighting over. And because nothing's worth fighting over, whenever there's any sort of controversy or anybody's particularly zealous about anything the job of the pastor is to preserve the incoming revenues by saying, stop being so zealous. So the, the mission is to constantly pour cold water into hot water. But to not let it get too cold, because then people will stop coming and stop giving. And so the idea of keeping things hot, that's the job. And so when you, when you, you keep things hot, the problem is tends, things tend to explode. And so you have to keep things hot and focus that heat at other targets. And so what happens is we've developed in Christian culture this sort of way of, of attacking everything that's good and making it so we have no idea what to do. So, for example, you hear, you hear people preach and they say, we need to not look outside for the enemy, but we need to look inside. Well, that's sort of true, except that 
we actually do have enemies outside, and we are supposed to overcome the world, so there's something we have to do towards them. So what we do is we look at, we have to control ourselves, treat people well who are with us in the church, and we have to work together on things out there. And so, if you have zealous young men who want to fight, the only way to avoid having that fight becoming internal is to focus that or to make them eunuchs or what you can try to do is find a way of sending them off. And seminary is a useful place to try to cool them off for a while. Get a good three, four years, see what happens. So this process of how do you deal with zeal is immediately what gets moved into. Verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The word fervent, the most literal meaning of that word is hot. So we're called to be diligent, which is, the word can also be translated as zealous. To be hot, which, you know, what does that mean? It means be zealous. And so when things get repeated right next to each other, that tends to be for emphasis. So, don't be lagging in zeal. Be zealous in spirit. Serving the Lord. Now, we should be like brother soldiers in having a zeal for the mission. When you have a zeal for mission, it's a lot easier to overlook offenses, right? If you're with somebody else and you're going into combat and one of you accidentally steps on the other one's foot, you're way less likely to get mad when you're on the way to go fight somebody together than if you're just kind of, you know, tooling around. Right? You, you've got nothing going on. Somebody steps on your foot. You can make that the mission. My mission now is to make you pay for that. But if you've got something else you're trying to accomplish then that little offense, that little accidental harm, even negligent harm, is something that you just, you go, well, the only reasonable thing here to do is to get this fixed and to move on. And so the focus on the mission, the glory of God, the doxological focus, the seeing the spread of the glory of God allows us to have zeal and to have it be focused and to avoid that just turning into a self-consuming so we are to have an eagerness in zeal, a hotness, an eagerness of zeal in our diligence. And the translation fervent in spirit, we could be talking about fervent in our own spirit, being zealous. You could also translate that as being fervent in the Holy Spirit. And so that would be the kind of zeal that is appropriate. There's zeal without knowledge, which Paul has already condemned, and there's zeal which is with the knowledge that is given by the Holy Spirit. And so, a zeal with knowledge is what's commended here. Now, this zeal with knowledge is to also be governed by service to the Lord. And the word that's translated serving, that's fine, but it's, more literally, it would be something like being a serving slave of Christ. It's slave turned into an active Thing. So it's this being a slave who is acting like a slave towards Christ. And remember, Paul has already told us that you are a slave to what you obey. And so, if we are obedient to Christ, we are serving like a serving slave of Christ. So, 
this carries on. So if you're going to work in this way, how do you maintain the zeal? How do you keep it focused on the goal? Well, you rejoice in hope. You're persevering or patient in tribulation. And we continue steadfastly in prayer. So these are sort of things that are connected. Rejoicing in hope has to do with the mission. But it's not just about being focused on the mission. Hope is a confident desire. It's the belief that the mission will be accomplished. It's You have an invincible belief that we will win. And so soldiers that enter combat thinking they're going to win tend to win more than soldiers going into combat who think they're going to lose. And so this brotherly love that we work with each other, right? We are honoring officers. Officers are serving people under authority. Equals are outdoing each other and showing honor to each other. They're zealously being diligent. They are zealously, according to the Spirit, seeking to serve Christ. And they have confidence in victory, which allows them to have fortitude to persevere when they're tested, when they're suffering. Which allows them to continue steadfastly in prayer, going, I'm suffering, we're going to win. Lord, take away the suffering or give me strength and help us to win. So you keep calling down airstrikes because prayer calls in very precise airstrikes against the enemy of God, which is going to be a subject that gets brought up more. Right? These are the weapons that we use to conquer. This is how we overcome. So we use good to overcome evil. When evil attacks you, the temptation is to be evil, which is actually, by the way, how you surrender. Right? The methodology for surrendering to evil and allowing Satan to rule you is when you say, ah, evil's being done to me. Let's raise the white flag. Let's raise the, the black flag of Satan now. And I'm going to give obedience to Satan. And so when you do sin, you are the slave of the one you serve. And so when you sin, you have surrendered and joined the enemy. And you have treasonously started, treasonously started to act in favor of Satan. And so when evil happens to you and you do evil, you are now serving Satan. And you do an action to advance the kingdom of Satan. We're not to do that. Should be pretty obvious, but we're not to do that. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to, in response to the attacks of the enemy, when we are tried, when we are tested, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are to respond with good. We are to respond with obedience to the law. We are to use the law, and that response is going to be destructive to the enemy in multiple ways, and encourages the surrendering of the enemy force to raise the white flag, right, they surrender, and then they raise the banner of Christ. That encourages conversion. It encourages repentance. It makes the internal integrity of the enemy a weapon against them. And it makes their own reputations a weapon against them. And so, this is the methodology of conquest. Now, if we are rejoicing in hope, if we are showing fortitude in tribulation, if we are continuing steadfastly in prayer, the other mechanisms that further help us to conquer the enemy in this process is a distributing to our own when they have need. We distribute to the needs of the saints. So that what we're going to have is manifestations of liberality, holding on to our property freely, knowing we're stewards. God has the absolute ownership. We have a delegated ownership. Our delegated ownership is for the mission. And so, when you have food and your brother doesn't, you give him food so that that soldier stays on the field. And he's strong. You bless him. 
and you're able to work together, and that builds bonds. Life is boring because we don't help each other, and when we do help each other, it's with hypocrisy, and that makes us other strife. If you help each other without hypocrisy, that reduces strife, and it builds bonds and makes the sort of thing you long for as a soldier out of the field. They're happy to be out of the field, happy to be away from the suffering, missing that brotherhood. And so we can create that kind of combat brotherhood here because we are in a spiritual war. So distributing to the needs of the saints. If you're going to do that, that means you have to work. The thing about distributing to the needs of the saints is you have to work hard to get property so that you have property to give when people have needs. And so the idea of dominion work, to prosper, to generate wealth. We are called to exercise dominion and to have something to give. We are called to have something to give as an inheritance, to leave an inheritance to our children and to our children's children. We increase the things that we can exercise the word of God over by increasing our possessions. If you increase possessions because you think money's the good, because you think that's going to make you happy, that's just worshiping money. But when you take money and you put it to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just more area that you get to honor God with. And it allows you to give strength to the brothers as they have need. And you also can't do hospitality without doing work. You have to have things to give. You have to have food to share. You have to have a place that you can call people into. And here's the other thing. Your house has to be in good enough order that you're willing to invite people over. Because letting people in is an embarrassing thing. Because you are giving witness into your private space and how you behave with your own family and how you've raised your children and what your relationship with you and your wife is like. And so hospitality puts things on display, which is why elders have to be hospitable, by the way, because that's the only way you're going to see into their lives well enough to see if they've got the other qualifications. And so the idea of hospitality allows you to see into the lives of those people, and it's them opening themselves up to correction, and they're doing it in the process of giving things to other people. It's like paying people to come and tell you bad things about yourself. That's what hospitality is. And it's for your good. This is the good life. The good life is that, because the alternative is you have a secret zone where you can hide your sin, and you don't make the advances, and you don't make the changes that need to be made, and you lazily fail to put your family in order. That's not nearly as good as putting your family in order. Putting your family in order makes it so that you have the peaceable fruit of righteousness that you enjoy even when people aren't there. And you have an overflow of blessing that you can share with them when they are there. And encourages them onward to see those things as well. So hospitality is central to individual ministry. Hospitality is the place where stuff happens. Hospitality is where ministry occurs. It's where everybody's able to speak. Out of the mouths of babes come truth in hospitality. They don't get to speak in the public assembly. but They do get to speak there. Husbands, if you want your wives to have opportunity to use their gifts, you have hospitality because it allows them to do that. They don't get to speak in the public assembly. They get to speak at home. That's where Priscilla and Aquila work together. Hospitality is the place where most of the ministry happens. It's where all of the saints get to use all of their gifts on a frequent basis. Right now, you all get to use your gift of discernment to figure out where I'm wrong and where I'm right. And I get to use my gift of teaching. But there are a lot more gifts than discernment and teaching. And so what happens in those other contexts, in the context of hospitality, is there's a giving 
that allows people to come together to share in material blessing for spiritual blessing. Hospitality is not just sharing a meal, it's sharing spiritual blessings. You must speak truth. If you just have people over for a meal and don't speak any truth, what's happening is you are failing to take advantage of the ministry opportunity. It's, it's a perfect example of, yeah, be warmed and be filled in my house. And also here's truth. And so it makes it far more credible. So distributing to the needs of the saints is also magnified by hospitality. You know where you tend to find out about people's problems? When you're talking to them in private. Hospitality gives you a place where you find out about people's problems and you can distribute to their needs. And so that idea of distributing to the needs of the saints, sure, there's the public diaconal ministry, but there's also generosity or liberality between members of the church, between the body, members of the body of Christ seeking to bless each other. And so hospitality is the place where that happens. Hospitality can occur by inviting people to a restaurant, not on the Lord's Day. It can also occur in the having people over to your house. It can also occur in terms of the ability of when you are going to someone's house seeking to be of service and helpful or having a joint place where you are meeting and seeking to work together for that sake. So frequently our fellowship meal is here and people bring food and take turns in that. So different people are having different elements of hospitality as they bring of their own material and providing that context. Now, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, when somebody persecutes you, you go, okay, this is an enemy. And so, how are we commanded to treat our enemies? We're to love our enemies. Loving our enemies involves applying the law toward them. And we are to bless them rather than curse them. And this comes down to the way that spiritual warfare works. It, it, appears, it appears contradictory at first. But the resolving of the contradiction is as follows. It's a paradox. It looks contradictory. You go, if we have enemies, how are we going to win if we don't curse them? How are we going to win if we bless them? The blessing is an indirect attack. Now, uh, B.H. Liddell Hart was a military strategist who famously wrote a lot of the dicta that was later used by the Nazis in terms of Blitzkrieg. Um, then basically the, the dicta was you need to move swiftly and you need to attack indirectly and you then follow up the indirect attack with pursuit to deal with the displacement that's occurred over and over again. Swift, indirect, followed up with pursuit. Swift, indirect, followed up with pursuit. That's the methodology that he proposed over and over again. In his book, the classic book on military strategy, his goal was to go through the entire recorded history of wars and in all of them to show who the victor and loser were. And in all of them to say who used indirect assaults and who used direct assaults. And so his goal was to say that there is no empirical evidence for anybody ever winning without massively overpowering the other. Except with indirect assaults. So that was the goal of the book. Now... This is not knowledge. It is helpful to draw our attention to it. It's an empirical study. But the Bible gives us this lesson of bless and do not curse. And then we're told later on why. And so if you go down towards the end of the chapter, 
you will see that we are told that we're not to take vengeance. God takes vengeance. And we build up God's vengeance taking if we feed our enemies when they're hungry. If we give them drink when they're thirsty. What we're doing is we're heaping coals on their head. No, you're not. You're giving them a drink and food. How does that work? Because it's indirect. Because God is going to take vengeance. And so you're building up power in the sense that there's an indirect attack that's occurring. By blessing them, you are causing them to either repent, that's being used to help them repent, or God is going to bring destruction on them in a magnified way. And so that's the weapon. It's an indirect assault. And we have something better than panzers. God is more powerful than large German tanks. And his indirect assaults are more effective than Blitzkrieg. And so when we bless those who persecute us and do not curse them, then what has happened is we are creating a weakness internally with their integrity. We are causing their reputations to suffer. And we are building up the coals that are going to be brought against them. And their fall will be great or they will join our side. You have to have the mission in mind in order to be willing to do that. Because the immediate desire of the vengeance, unless you believe this is not going to be effective in the vengeance getting, and you realize that I don't own the vengeance getting, God owns the vengeance getting, you're going to have that temptation and fail. So having a focus on the mission makes it easier to be able to go the indirect means. Now, this does not mean that you cannot defend yourself. This does not mean that it is wrong for the civil authority to take vengeance. The civil authority, Romans 13 teaches us, is a minister of wrath. They take vengeance because they've been appointed to take vengeance on God's behalf. And do you see how blessing rather than cursing would help you in that? In a courtroom, whose testimony is going to be more believable? The one who's persecuting or the one who's blessing in response to the persecuting? Do you see how if other people only can say, this guy did well, to this other person after he was harmed. That's going to increase your testimony. And kids, when your parents are trying to determine who to spank, what's going to go better for you? If you respond back and try to take vengeance for yourself, or if you are able to say, I kept calm and I went and got get mom, and what happened is now I'm bearing testimony, so please administer discipline. That, that administering of discipline is going to be way more effective if children, you stay calm. And don't take vengeance. So, you keep things clean. You keep your nose clean. You avoid looking like you have done wrong. And that's going to undermine your opponent. It's going to undermine their reputation, advance your reputation, and it will pour coals on their head if God extracts vengeance himself. So, the use of curses, is there a lawful place for curses? Because we sing the Psalms. The Psalms have curses on our enemies. So the lawful place for curses, curses are for defeating the public enemies of God. You call them down conditionally because we don't know who's reprobate. So you say, in general, God, curse your enemies, and that's appropriate, and we're asking God to bring down destruction on his enemies, and that is going to be fulfilled on the reprobate. When you try to tell what somebody's eternal destiny is, and say, oh, I know that guy's a reprobate. He's the worst. Right? When you do that, 
what you're doing is you're presuming to judge. You are taking on the idea that you are the one who elects or reprobates. You are acting as one who knows who will be saved, and you don't. And so you only call curse in a general way or on those whom God has already revealed there is permanent curse. So we pray against Satan, for example. We pray against Antichrist, false prophets who have added to the revelation of God. And so those are examples of where it's appropriate to call down curse. And you call curse against enemies generally besides that. So we are to bless and not curse as the general rule. That's how we deal with the other texts. So verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is the tenth commandment applied. It's loving your neighbor as yourself, seeing the gains of the individual as the gains of the church and of Christ, seeing the loss of the individual as the loss of the church and of Christ. And because you have a communion of the saints, their loss is your loss. And so we can talk about this in terms of it being a sort of compassion. What is compassion? It's having feeling with the other person. Now, God has no passions. He's no feelings. So when we talk about God having compassion, what we really mean is God understands but does not feel the pain. Christ in his humanity feels pain. But when we're talking about ourselves, we're talking about the idea of the change of feeling when we find out about someone else's problems. And what's feeling? Feeling's an effect. Feeling is what happens when there's change. And so you're going to have emotions when there's something you value highly and you find out that things about that have changed quickly. If you value money highly and you find out you're getting a large bonus, you're going to be very happy. If you value money highly and you find out that you just lost a bunch of money, you're going to be very sad. Right? So what happens is the things you value and the changes to those things you value are going to change the feelings you have. Swift change of large amount about something you care about. Large feeling. So when you hear about your neighbor having gone through some horrible thing, if you don't feel anything, you don't care much. When you really have a deep valuing of that neighbor and find out about some horrible tragedy they have gone through, then that's going to result in you having a like feeling unto them. And so... The idea of compassion, that's what the, the, the word passion has to do with feeling, it's, it's the command, the root command is really to have a unity of interest, to care about their well-being. It's really the command to love them. You want their good. And so when you hear about things that sound like harm to them, you are to care about it like it had happened to you, and that's loving your neighbor as yourself. So we are to be of the same mind toward one another, to not set our mind on high things, but to associate with the humble. And this is how you can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If you have the same mind toward one another, you therefore care about their interest. You love them as you love yourself. You care about their interest. That allows you to rejoice with them and to weep with them. Now, the people that's hardest to do that with honestly, are peers. If somebody's over you in some way, your interests are probably united. What's good for them is probably good for you. If somebody's under your authority, you know, they think about your children or you got an employee that reports to you, stuff that's good for them is going to generally be something that you also find is good for you. It's going to be pretty easy. But when somebody's your peer, you tend to have less claim on what happens to them. 
And so we tend to envy the successes of our peers. And we tend to have a little bit of inward happiness about the harms that happen to them. And so this unity is most difficult to have towards our peers and this desire for their well-being and the rejoicing and the weeping with them. And so one of the things that's a practice that helps that, do you know what tends to be harder to care about even than your peers? People who are of a lower station to you that do not report to you. Not your employee, not your kid. And so do you really care about your peers' children? Do you care about your peers' employee? Do you care about somebody who's working someplace else in a low station? And so the reality is if somebody's in a significantly worse position than you economically and is not a part of some group that you have an immediate obligation to, it's difficult to care and it's difficult to find advantage in spending time with them. It's difficult to find ways that they're going to advance your station. And so when you spend time with other people, you're likely to find about, about their problems if they're in a lower station with you. So it's typically the case that people with more money and higher station avoid spending time and building relationship with people with less money and in lower station because that becomes a source of problems. So there's a command here, and this command is directed against the way that we would think normally in our flesh. And it's not just be of the same mind toward one another with those who you're connected with in sort of like a family or business, but even your peers, and not just your peers, but also do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Almost every success book you can find out there says anybody who's in a worse situation with you than you just cut them off and hang out with people who are in a higher situation than you. And so that idea, that worldly wisdom of advancing your station by setting your mind on high things and refusing to associate with the humble, that's being wise in your own opinion. And I guarantee you, God is right and the success gurus are wrong. You will be blessed if you have friendships with people who are in every station. And if you seek to bless them and to enter into their troubles and to be a friend, don't be wise in your own opinion. Be wise according to what God has revealed in His Word. And so friendships with people who are of low station, lower station than you, is a way of increasing in your ability to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, when you do that, when you have this sort of same-mindedness and the ability to care about other people's interests, the desire for their good, to glorify God by pursuing their good, it makes it easier to not repay evil for evil. Because if we are honest, when you spend time with people who have troubles, it's going to remind you of your troubles. And they sort of serve as an external law. 
There are ways in which they're better than you. There are ways in which they're worse than you. They have troubles that come out of their sins. You have troubles that come out of your sins. And so in spending time and caring, there's this way in which when you're interacting with people that are in a lower station, what's going to happen is you're going to have certain defenses come down. Parents, if you engage with your own children, you don't keep up the same sort of I've got it all togetherness that you try to have with people you're trying to impress, right? We don't tend to try to impress our children in the same way that we try to impress other people. And that's true also with people who we don't think we can get an advantage out of them to advance our station. We tend to drop that. And so these things help us to be able to see our own failings, and that makes it easier to be merciful. And so vengeance tends to come out of self-righteousness. Vengeance is not wrong. God owns vengeance, and he is righteous in himself. And he should take vengeance. We are not righteous in ourselves. And unless you're a civil magistrate, you haven't been given the authority to exercise vengeance. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things. It's actually more literally provide good in the sight of all or before the face of all men. So we don't take vengeance. Instead, what we need to do is we need to provide good. So remember how we've emphasized at the beginning of the chapter, it talks about all these spiritual gifts and how they're all things where you're empowered by God to serve each other. And so you're providing something good to each other with your spiritual gifts. And now we're being exhorted, provide good in the sight of all. Provide good before the face of all. In front of every man, not just in in front of some, but no matter who you're with, seek to provide good, provide service, blessing through the spiritual gifts you've got. Do good work no matter who you're in front of. Do not hide your good work. Be like a city on a hill. Do not make a show of self-righteousness, but rather show the fruit of the Spirit and humility, knowing that you have been saved from your sins. And so, that call, that's the response when we receive evil. This is, this is sort of the refrain. He's calling over and over again. People are going to mistreat you. That's like men's warehouse. I guarantee it. Right? You're going to be mistreated. And so when that happens, the response is to repay them with blessing. It's to do good works. You're persecuted, do another good work. That is the response. And that is made fun of even in art that's trying to make fun of evil people. You see over and over again the idea that that this doesn't actually have an effect. And you go, you know, look, people's consciences are seared. The world's really bad. This is fruitless. Doing the right thing, uh, you know, when it's not going to have any effect, that's just going to make you feel better, right? The, the, over and over again, this idea that doing the right thing is something that's fruitless. But if we, as the army of Christ, assembled under his banner, consistently together apply those means, the church's witness is powerful. A single shovel doesn't move a lot of dirt, but an army digging together can dig enormous trenches very quickly. And so this idea that we are to work together and to each do good in response to evil, providing good works, when we do that, the cumulative witness of the church is such that it causes people to fall to their knees and to turn to Christ. 
If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. General rule, live peaceably with all men. Be blameless. Avoid unnecessary fights. Try not to take offense. Try not to give offense. If you're going to have to fight with somebody, go to the more basic things so you can avoid arguing about all the nonsense at the surface. You go to the deeper thing. You overlook things in order to go to the deeper things. You fight about urgent duties. You think about Daniel. He's required to eat food that's either not kosher or dedicated to idols. And he says, okay, I'm not going to do that. So he goes and he tries to ask permission. He goes as the supplicant to ask to be able to eat only vegetables. He doesn't ask, hey, would you give me permission to eat only vegetables forever because I'm offended by your food? He says, I'd like to, for a limited amount of time, eat only vegetables, and then you test me. See if I look as good as the other servants who are eating the king's meat. Ask people to positively test God's law. So this idea in urgent duties, you try to figure out how to minimize the fight like Daniel did so that you can reduce the point of conflict. Right? Your goal, the one of the ways you keep peace is by narrowing the point of conflict so that you can ask for a smaller concession rather than picking to fight about everything all at once. So this idea of trying to live peaceably. You pick fights about urgent duties. You try to find fights about more basic issues rather than less basic issues. You avoid giving offense. And you try to be careful about not taking offense. But the thing about bold righteousness is it offends people. I'll tell you what, even cowardly righteousness offends people. Right? People were offended by Jesus. People of Sodom were offended by Lot. He walks out and says, please don't rape my guests. And they say, who is this guy? He's made himself judge of us ever since he got here. Like This is literally a response to the people in Sodom. And so when we say, that's evil, please don't do that to me and mine, right? the response is stop judging us. Like That's the absurdity sometimes that happens. So you can't always avoid giving offense. But our sins give offense. And so we seek to cut off our sins and we want our righteousness to be the offense. And so that makes it so that if possible, as much as depends upon you, you live peaceably with all men. That's how you do it. Let righteousness be the offense. Do good works in front of other people let them be offended by that. The other way you encourage peaceableness is by building up goodwill. You, you do favor and blessings. And it's interesting because Paul has just told us repeatedly to give people blessings in the face of being persecuted. That builds up goodwill. Careful and rare demands. What are you asking for? What are you demanding of people? Uh, not putting yourself around people too much to take from them. Avoiding being unnecessarily annoying. And one of the things, why do we want to be around people so much? Uh, one of the things that happens, Descartes talks about the problem that, you know, we can't stay in a room by ourselves and be happy. This is one of the great human problems. You sit down, you've got a good book, you go, I really need to examine myself and grow. You look out the window and you go, man, it's nice outside. You get up and leave that book and your desk behind and you don't examine yourself. And so we lack contentment there. It actually may be Pascal, sorry, I'm not sure which of the two it is. So one of them says that. And there's this idea of that problem of not examining ourselves. So one of the purposes of of the genre of horror 
is to reveal the awfulness of sin. And so, you know, zombies, what are zombies about? This idea of a thing that mindlessly goes around and craves and consumes everybody else around them, right? And this, this destructive element that the self-life, the flesh life that we have, we are pleasure zombies. We consume other people to feed our desires. We destroy the lives of others in an effort to satisfy our bottomless cravings. What are, what are vampires about? Vampires show sort of this urbane sophistication in trying to seduce other people into letting us sap the life out of them for our own enjoyment. Right? We all think, all this instruction about trying to be good to other people and build a relationship, it's so hard. We all become very sophisticated when we're trying to get something out of someone. Think about the level of, of political intelligence you display when you need to get something out of someone. But when it's, we're trying to seek their good, the level of sort of sophistication in trying to be careful and cautious and kind, all of a sudden it's overbearing. How can we possibly bear this? Right, so the, we have this urbane sophistication in pursuing our own pleasure, but we do it to the harm of other people. So those genres, zombies and vampires, right? that's us. We are them. And we're trying to sap things out of other people. And so if we're around other people and trying to take that as opposed to serving them, that's what happens, which is why we have to provide good over and over again in front of people. So if possible, if it's possible, be at peace with all men. Sometimes they're offended at your righteousness. So 19, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Verse 21. Do not overcome, sorry, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have just been given instruction about how to do this. We are not to be overcome by evil. We are not to respond by cursing. We are not to respond by by seeking to harm. We don't take vengeance into our own hands. Instead, we overcome, we conquer evil with good. We do good works and thereby subdue the enemy and oftentimes bring them over to obedience to Christ by doing good in the presence of all. We are to offer resistance with prophecy and prayer. Use physical resistance to defend yourself and sometimes we must flee persecution. But in the ordinary course of things, prophecy and prayer and doing good works as a powerful witness. We conquer evil with good. We respond to evil by resisting it, repulsing its advances, and seeking to take territory for the dominion of righteousness, the kingdom of God. When we respond to evil with evil, we are surrendering our bodies to become the territory of Satan. I've given to you, again, in the printout at the end, the fifth commandment. I encourage you to study it on your own. Use part of your Sabbath day for that. And for the comments, questions, or objections from the voting members or those with speaking rights. Mr. Marsh. Uh, I'll raise, uh, thank you. Uh, is there a land where can you... Uh, saying necessarily curse someone, but blessing them um, when there's something that's done to you 
told to, to shake the dust off our feet and leave when we realize, come to realization that these people don't want to seek the Lord. Um, how, where we draw that line? Where's that line? Right, so where is the line of demarcation where you do curse? Um, the line of, of demarcation where you curse is non-repentance and criminal behavior. Um, so you, um, when does Paul kick the dust off his feet? When does Jesus instruct people to kick the dust off their feet? Uh, when does Paul give instruction for people to, be, to have the curse of God and the scourging of Satan called upon them that their flesh would be destroyed for the saving of their souls? Uh, what we, we, we do that, there's, there's good order, and then there's the line, like you mentioned. So um, the Matthew 18 process is how you deal with believers. When, if there's not a shared court, because the, ch- the church is in total disarray now, right? So you go, okay, so church don't care about each other's courts, and, and so how do you even do stuff? And some churches don't even let you, don't even care about conflict resolution, don't have the mark of the church in that way. And so, oh, if they don't have that, then... They don't have that mark of the church, so they're outside of the church. So if you try and can't get any conflict resolution to happen, then you're essentially having to pronounce that they're outside of that church. And that means now, for example, 1 Corinthians teaches us to not sue believers, right? You take them through the church courts. Well, if they don't respond to the church court, if they don't obey the church court in fixing the damage, then they are to be treated as unbelievers, and so now you can take him to the civil magistrate, right? So there's an order of things, um, and there is also a, uh, when you think about criminal behavior, so somebody comes and harms you. I have somewhere on here the, the Exodus 22 thing about somebody breaking into the house. It's not a crime to kill the person when they break into your house. It says if the sun rises on that person. Some people try to read that as if somebody breaks into your house and it's daytime, if you kill them, then you'll be charged with murder. That is not what that text is saying. The idea is, somebody breaks into your house at night, you are resisting them, you are to be assumed as acting in sort of a continuous spree of self-defense, unless you literally hunt them down the next day after the sun has risen and killed them. Right? So there's this presumption of the one who's been attacked is to be viewed as innocent when defending themselves, unless there's strong evidence that they were taking vengeance into their own hands. Um, so that's how socially we're to deal with things. But before God, your own motive, you know your motive, and there might be a mixture of motives, and you try to deal with the bad part and repent of it, right? But when you've got something where there's, here's something where someone's defrauding me and they're not obeying the church court, or the church court is, uh, you know, a church court that's separated and showing it doesn't have the marks of the church, you know, those are the cases where you go to the civil magistrate, and when you have to defend yourself, you do. And so there are, there are lines. I think the law of God provides all of those details of where the lines are and when you, uh, when you curse rather than bless. Does that, did I answer your question? Uh, I guess it was right. It can be difficult. Yeah. Right. I think look for particular texts. Look for the texts that are the closest to what you can find. 
They're not going to be ones that deal explicitly with your situation, right? But they're going to be some points of relationship. Look at them together as a whole and then try to avoid violating any of them while advancing the goal, you know, and you're, you're trying to figure out how does that work together as a, as a constellation of, of verses and the necessary inferences you can draw from them are going to allow you to, to have a conclusion. So, you know that, but, okay, great, then I'll pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you would bless it to our souls, that you would build us up in the knowledge of you, that you would help us to overcome evil, to not be overcome by evil, that we would stand strong, that we would have fortitude amidst trials, and that we would be continuously praying to bring your power to bear on the situations around us. I ask that you would give us strength and that you would help us to be with each other and to fight as brothers side by side, seeking to outdo each other and showing honor to each other. We pray this in Christ's name.